well. We did have a great, a great week. We, we went through just the tail end of chapter 4 and then all of chapter 5. But for me, it felt like we did like three chapters worth. Because it felt like there was information and then more information and then more. Oh, and how about that day three? Come on, you guys, when you hit day three, did you think it was never going to end? I, I thought, Kay, what were you thinking? She could have broke it up a little bit better. Uh, you know, we, ha- we have a lot of things going on in here. We did, um, on day one, though, she asked us to go back and to simply set context for what we were about to enter into, into in chapter five, right? And you have to wonder sometimes when she does that, what, what is it that maybe we are missed or would miss if we didn't do that, Correct. So what we want to do this morning together is go back and do that. And it'll be a great opportunity for us to also catch up our at-a-glance chart. Now, I don't know how you're doing on your at-a-glance chart, but hopefully at this point you've got titles uh, for each of your chapters marked in in on your at-a-glance chart, correct? For those of you who know what, what I'm talking about here, just take a look. The other thing is, now I have moved mine to the back of my page because it's so extensive, but you want to make sure that you have paid attention to who your author is, who the recipient is, and the dating of this book. And all the dating of the book is not something that we have marked uh, or talked about, really. So can, would somebody like to expound on the dating of this book? It is so obvious, it's in your face. Which, there you go. It's right after the, the death and then the resurrection of Jesus. And after also a period of how many days? 40 days. And then, the, and then another additional 10 days. And then what fell? A Holy Spirit. On what day? The day of Pentecost. So this is the first Pentecost after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the dating. Okay? That was pretty simple, huh? I mean, that's probably one of the easiest ones we've ever had to date in our work in recent years. I mean, a lot of them you have to say, well, we think it's here to here, and we know this has happened, or that probably hasn't happened because it's not mentioned, or, or these other events are still taking place. But in this one, it's clear. <laughs> we know it's right after uh, the ascension of Jesus, and then, of course, that day of Pentecost. All right, so, um, and then the next thing we want to review real quickly as, as part of this process of looking at the birthing of this church is, um, what have we come to see at this point, or what have you come to see at this point, uh, is the purpose for the author's writing in this? What do you, just kind of in general, and I know there's no real super direct statement uh, but I think there is at least one that's pretty close to alluding to what he's wanting to accomplish. It's a follow-on from his first, from the gospel, but it's also then the history of the, of the church that he's documenting with Theophilus, probably. There you go. So he's documenting the birthing of the church, in essence. That is, I mean, it is pretty obvious. It's, I always thought it was kind of interesting that the book is called Acts, when that kind of implies it has to do with each of the events that are happening, you know, in here. When it's, it just says acts, but it doesn't say acts of what or of who exactly. It's supposed to be the acts of the apostles. I, I realize that. But personally, I don't think I would call it that. Would you? If you were going to name this book, which is what we want to do, we want a theme for our book on the whole, what would you give as a theme for the book on the whole at this point if, if you had to? 
The, I know they do. The Acts of the Apostles. Yes, they do. But to me, would you, it could be the Acts of the Apostles, but do you think that's the focus? It could be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And not only that, but I remember one commentary says, well, it's not the Acts of all the Apostles, just of some of the Apostles. <laughs> and I thought that was kind of funny that he made that comment. But if you were going to name it, would you say it's about the Apostles? No. Okay, what would you say the name of this book would be if you were naming it right now? God's Church. I like that one. That's really, really good. Um, yeah. That's interesting that you say God's church, too, because that, that, that title of God encompasses, because he's a three-in-one God, it encompasses the triune God of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yes. That's good. Okay. Any others? Any other thoughts? Okay. Okay, the spread of the gospel. It's almost like that's the second. It's the birth of the church and then the spread of the gospel. So it could be a two-part, you know, thought to the titling on that. Okay, so those are a couple of things to be pondering on where we haven't totally come to a place where we've all decided on what we're going to title our book yet, right? But that's one of the jobs that we have as precept students inductively is to observe it and at some point decide what is the major theme that's going on here. And we think it's about the birthing of the church and then the spread of the gospel. So somehow you have to title your book along those lines at this point, right? Hmm? How about the birthing of the church? The birthing of the church. That's a good one. That'll work too. And, and then certainly the birthing of the ch- church would take you to the next step, which would be then the spread of that, right? Mm-hmm. In foreign countries, most of them, these are big, uh, translated from Greek. Yes. Yeah, I know, they do. But, you know, the names of these books, um, many of them are by tradition, obviously, and they've been handed down by years. And that's where this one comes from by tradition through the years. But there's nothing sacred about that title, Acts. Um, So, uh, you know, at this point, what we want to do, most of our books, we have a major theme for our book, and we title it ourselves, don't we? So we want to do the same thing in this book, too, at some point, is come up with a title. What would you call the book of Acts as a theme for the book on the whole? Okay? So that's what we're just kind of contemplating at this point. Um, is there a major verse in the opening of Acts that you see that might do a good job of pointing in that direction? Is there any one single verse that you've seen thus far that seems to point to that birthing? Mm-mm. <laughs> Okay, the church is mentioned at this point already in chapter 5, right? The first mention of the word church. In chapter 1, yes, go ahead. There you go. I think think what happens after that is you'll be my witnesses, and that's really what's happening there. And in that, you will be my witnesses is that Acts of the Apostles there. I like that one. You will be my witnesses. And then it says where? And the remotest parts of the earth. So it really, so it shows you that exponential growth of it, right? So that's a good, that might be a good verse to use as, as a major 
uh, or a key verse for the book on the whole. So we're considering all these things yet, and we're pondering on it, and I think at, at some point we're going to hang, hang our hats on it and say, yes, I think this is it. This seems to be the, mo the, the most declarative statement that shows us what's going on in this book, what the author's purpose is, and therefore we can title it based off of that thing, okay? All right, and so now the next thing we want to look at then is to simply go back through and take a look at what we've seen going on. So let's talk about, well, let's do this first. Let's go ahead and write down here the author's purpose that we, that we have discussed thus far. We see the birthing of the church. Uh, in other words, it's beginning. And then the spreading of, of the gospel, right? Okay, so that's the first two things. Now, that is one of the things that's going on here. This is basically, it's a historical record, right? I forgot to put that title up there. So it's a historical record of the birthing of the church and the spreading of the gospel, correct? All right. Secondly, what else goes on here that you've seen really come to the surface in here? What kind of things are being taught to us in this book? Okay, issues like loving one another, okay? Uh, sharing. And sharing. Those are all things that came out of this week's work. That's right. You know, like selling your land and giving to the mm -hmm. poor. All right. And so we're going to talk about that particular subject this morning when, when we get to that point on um, the oneness that we're to have and what that really means, how we observe that through cross-references. There you go. Yeah, because as it's spreading, if you're seeing it, it's a historical record of the birthing of the church, but this is also the spreading of the gospel. And so it's the teachings that they give through that spreading of the gospel. These are doctrinal teachings, which is really cool. So the second thing, besides it being, number one, a historical record, number two, it's also teaching of doctrines. And they're doctrines pertaining to what? Okay, of, okay of, of Jesus as the Savior to the church, right? And the Holy Spirit's relationship or role in the work of the church. And one more personage, God the Father. And, and what are we seeing when you have been traversing through this book so far? What quality of God seems to keep popping up the strongest? Well, no, the Holy Spirit and Jesus, but concerning God, what's, what quality or characteristic of God are we seeing strong, most strongly uh, presented to us in this book? His power and sovereignty. Have you seen over and over how he predetermined things? It was things that was recorded beforehand. It's what he purposed to do in Christ Jesus. If you have not been paying attention to that, noticing sovereignty, 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 sovereignty of God over and over, start doing so. You might even want to go back um, like we did this week and reread those first few chapters. And every time you see a little note in there where you see the sovereignty of God, Make a note about, uh, to yourself, note to self, sovereignty. So, and that's what I've been doing, just kind of in, um, in the column outside on, the, on my observation worksheet or just even above the verse sometimes. I've just been writing their sovereignty again, their sovereignty again, because 
Although there are other things about God the Father that are presented, the strongest one is, is his sovereign hand over his church, which is being birthed, right? So there's teachings of doctrines, and it's number one, it's going to be the role of um, the Holy Spirit. Because is this not something new for the Holy Spirit? Mm-hmm. And it also speaks of Jesus as Savior of that church. And God the Father as sovereign over the church. Everything from the beginning, from the, in, the inception of the idea of a birthing of a church. And, and by the way, when, at one, what point in history was the idea of the church in the mind of God? From before the foundation of the world. Isn't that interesting? Although we see the actuality of it right here at Pentecost, the idea and the concept and the planning for the church is something that God did from even before the foundation of the world. Isn't that a kind of an interesting thought to dance around with? Um, last night I went in and pulled out this book. It's called All the Doctrines of the Bible by Lockery. And in here there's a whole section on doctrine of the church. And it gets really in-depth. It gets kind of crazy to read. But if you have access to anything online where you can go in and just say doctrines of the church, it would, I think you would find it really insightful to go, oh my gosh, it's true. Because if you just kind of breeze through, not, don't spend a lot of time because you can get, I spent too much time and I got lost in it. But um, you, you don't want to get trapped in that. But you do want to kind of tantalize your thinking a little bit, open your mind up a little bit to say, what am I seeing here concerning doctrines of the church? Because it's what we are learning in this particular study is doctrines. And it, it's basically like doing a Roman study, really. It's just that it's specific to the church itself and anything that pertains to the church. Um, here is a list. I'm just going to read through this to you real quickly because I found it uh, interesting. He says, as Christ is in every born-again believer, there is the church. Paul had this in mind when he used church of an individual believer in Romans 16. Although church is the usual description of those who belong to Christ, other um, terms are used to express the relationship existing between the head and the body, right? right. Christ and us, the church. How would one like to linger over the following uh, similes explaining the significance of each so here it is here's some some descriptions of the church the body of christ the bride of christ the glory of christ the house of christ the house of god the habitation of god the temple of god the temple of the living god god's building god's husbandry god's heritage the church of god the church of the living god the church of the firstborn the Israel of God, the flock of God, the city of the living God, Mount Zion, New Jerusalem, heavenly Jerusalem, spiritual house, the pillar and ground of truth, the family in heaven and earth, a mystery, a light of the world, the golden candlesticks, the salt of the earth, the bread, an elect race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. That's just a start. Wow. 
That was one little list in this multitude of pages of reading on possibilities to consider in learning and expounding your thoughts about what are the doctrines that we hold fast to as the church. And you would think that this might be an insignificant thing to consider, but I can tell you that with all the varying denominations that we have out there, this is a doctrine which you do need to establish in your mind. What do you believe is true about the church. So today we are going to also cover a couple of points on that, what we've seen thus far, just chapters 1 to 5, on what we would consider to be doctrines. And it's going to be what I call an analytical, and it's what Precept calls analytical thinking. You analyze what you've looked at so far and you draw some conclusions and you just make points. So it's not right out of scripture, it's just conclusions that you're drawing from what you're seeing about, uh, about the birthing of the church thus far. So we're going to do that together. Let's go back now. We know it's, the number one, the historical record. We know it's teachings of doctrines. So now let's go in and look at considering these two things, this historical record and the teaching of doctrines. Let's go in and look at what we've titled our chapters so far so that we can get our mindset ready. So in chapter 1, how did we title chapter 1? What do you see happening there? And you do not have to use the title that you've used so far. Remember, uh, in inductive Bible study, often we first, at our first blush, we'll title something. But then as time goes by, we clean things up and we, we um, crystallize them a little bit better, right? So if you have a better thought or a different thought than we've had before, it's fine. But as long as it doesn't, you know, fall outside of what actuality is going on in that chapter one. What happened in chapter one? In chapter one, it doesn't fall yet. What are they waiting for? They're they're waiting for the promise. That's it. The apostles are waiting. They wait for number one, what the father promised. And that's in verse 4 of chapter 1. And also what they heard from Jesus, right? Also in chapter, uh, or verse 4. Now, what was that what, that they were waiting for? The Holy Spirit. And where do you see that? In verse what? Go to the very next verse after four. <laughs> Number five, right? And it says, and they wait, and, you, and not many days from now you should be baptized with the Holy Spirit, right? And had just defined for us what that was. The apostles were waiting for the Holy Spirit. That's what's going on in, in chapter one. Um, I want us to also keep in mind as we move through this that we do see very heavily this triune God this trinity being represented to us or presented to us as we move through this, okay? Uh, we talked about this a co- actually a couple of weeks already, but the importance of um, capturing our, our um, understanding and deepening our relationship with the triune God that we worship, understanding who Jesus is and what his role was, actually distinguishing the roles too, identifying who is God the Father, who is Jesus the Son, and, and what is the role then also of the Holy Spirit? And 
although we know it is a three-in-one God and they all are equal to one another and they're all God, yet they each have a distinguished role, correct? So sometimes we split it apart and we say this is what he did and then sometimes we just mush it all together and say, well, it could be God, it could be Jesus, it could be the Spirit. Actually, it's all of them, right? Because it is a three-in-one God. So that's that mystery that makes things a little challenging for us. But it's really fun to be watching for that. So we're seeing here in chapter 1 that they were waiting for it. And then what happened then in chapter 2? It falls. Thank you, Kathleen. (laughs) The Holy Spirit falls. It fell. And when did it fall, by the way? On day of Pentecost, right? To, to think that that's not significant would be to miss a huge point in this particular account. Because that has a, a huge implication. Let's flip over to chapter 2 together. And I want you to look at this with me. So, did you notice how it talks about the falling of the Holy Spirit? And then uh, he stands up, Peter does, in verse 16 it says, But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel, right? He begins to explain what they're seeing. And what were they seeing happening? What was going on in chapter 2 that they saw happening? The speaking in tongues, right. And therefore, speaking of the mighty deeds of God, right? And he says, this is what Joel the prophet spoke of, right? Then Then the very next thing he says is, in verse 22, is what? What does he do? Uh Uh-huh. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Now he does what? He talks to us about who? About Jesus. Now, does it, do you think he just switched subjects altogether? What was the purpose of him mentioning Jesus, and what does he tell us about Jesus? He is connecting them. What is he saying about Jesus right here? What happened with Jesus in verse 22 and 23? What, is he, what happened? Okay, he, he was a, it was a predetermined plan, and when Jesus came, how did he come? By what? By God with what? Signs, wonders, and miracles. Did you notice this? What had just happened with the falling of the Holy Spirit? A sign, wonder, and a miracle. So what he's doing is he's connecting. This is what was really cool to me. I had this great thing. The Holy Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost. And when the Spirit came, the Spirit came with what? Signs, wonders, and miracles, right? Just like Jesus did. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago I said, uh, I had put it on the chart for you because I was out, but that in John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to him and says, we know that you're from God because no one can do the things that you do except that he be from God. So the signs and the wonders that Jesus did attested to the fact that Jesus was from God. In the same way, when the Holy Spirit came, and it came by a sign, a wonder, and a miracle, that also attested that it had come from God. Isn't that cool? So number one, the Holy Spirit fell, and the sp- I'm going to put on here the Spirit, because we're learning some of these doctrines. The Spirit came with signs just as Jesus did. And he says so, and he explains it in verse 22, correct? And if that's not enough, what does he say in verse 16 and 17 and so forth? When the Spirit came, what did, what, how did it come? In fulfillment of what? In fulfillment of Scripture, of prophecy, right? What about Jesus? 
Yeah, because in 23, he says of Jesus, what? He came as a result or as is response to or to fulfill a predetermined plan of God. Predetermined, by the way, which had been proclaimed to them through the generations. They all knew that he was coming. The seed was promised. The covenant was made. Um, and they were looking for him and watching for him. Remember John the Baptist when he was in prison says, are you the one we were expecting, right? So you see then that the Spirit came with signs just as Jesus did, and the Spirit came fulfilling Scripture just as Jesus did. So I just used verse 16 to show you that that's where he introduces that, that what Joel the prophet had spoken of concerning the Holy Spirit, right? Here, uh, Jesus came with signs, and so did the Holy Spirit. If you wanted to look at those first verses starting, hold on, let me give you the right verses. Um, um, I guess we can do verse 6 maybe. When the sound came, the crowd became, they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speaking in his own language. Do you think that's a good verse for you, verse 6, for this? So you can use 22 and 6 combined as your, as your reference for the Spirit came with signs just as Jesus did, and the Spirit came fulfilling Scripture just as Jesus did, okay, in 16 and then 23, Okay. Then the last thing I thought was very interesting was the, the time. When did the Spirit come again? On Pentecost. And when the Spirit came, what did he actually do then concerning Pentecost? He fulfilled it. Isn't that interesting? You know, we have that chart that Kay uses for us often that's found in the inductive book that shows all the feasts, right, and how Jesus... Uh, in, in essence, fulfills these feasts. But what I found interesting last night was when I, or yesterday when I was doing my homework, was the Lord gave me a great insight on this. Because it's the triune God, and it's not just all about Jesus, although it, that, it, it, certainly he has a significant role in this. But this is interesting. A couple weeks back, we went back and we looked at Jesus as he was fulfilling the various feasts up to this point, right? We looked at um, Passover and uh, Unleavened bread and uh, what was the other one? Uh, first fruits, correct? What do you call those three feasts collectively? The, the feasts are the festivals of Passover, right? They have one title, even though there's three things in it, but it's in one festival, correct? Okay, so just as Jesus fulfilled the festivals of Passover, now we're seeing the Holy Spirit fulfill what? This 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 day of, a, of, of uh, Pentecost, right? The, the, and it's called the Feast of Weeks, by the way. Right. So he's fulfilling a feast as well. And there's one more feast yet in the Hebrew calendar, and that's the one called Tabernacles, right? Yeah. Who do you think is going to fulfill that one specifically? Jesus. Well, it, Jesus is coming. will have a work in it, but we just came out of Ezekiel. What is God doing in the fulfillment of that, that tabernacle? festival what did he say he's going to do concerning his name and bringing them back to their land and so forth it's it's bringing the jews back and and he says and i'm not doing it for your sake jews because you're stubborn and you're stiff-necked i am doing it to do what 
to vindicate my holy name. So in that feast being fulfilled, it's about God fulfilling it, right? That his name be vindicated among the nations, that the people be put back on their land, that his bride, the wife of God, you remember what we learned in Ezekiel about the wife of God and how she was a, had become a harlot or an adulterous woman? Do you remember that? So what we see in the coming of that particular feast, the, the Feast of Tabernacles, is that God is going to fulfill it. So what do we have? We have three distinctive feasts. The first feast is fulfilled in Jesus. The second one was fulfilled with by who? The Holy Spirit. And the one to come is going to be fulfilled by God. Now, I want to show you a verse that God... I'm not kidding you. I just about fell over in my chair when God showed me this. He gave me a verse. I went back in because when, I, when this came to my mind that this was showing us the Trinity in the feasts, uh, not just Jesus, because that's the part I have always basically known, and I'm going to put the lid on. Thank you. He looked at me funny. I, oh, I've got to put the lid on it. <laughs> I always dry my lid, my lid out. <laughs> okay, so um, when I first saw this and I thought, oh, that's interesting. I wonder if those feasts do represent the triune God. And so... I needed to clarify my understanding a, a little bit better in my mind about the Feast of Tabernacles because I could see the, the, that the, uh, the Feast of Weeks was, was the Holy Spirit. I could definitely see the, the Feast of, pa- of Passover being Jesus for sure. But then I wasn't sure about the tabernacle if that was back to Jesus or if it was actually the focus upon God the Father. So um, I flipped into my, con- my commentary stuff and was looking for some cross-references to go in and look a little bit more about that feast and its original giving. And this is the verse that God gave me, you guys. This is so cool. It's Deuteronomy 16, 16. Somebody want to open it there and read that out loud? This is really cool. And I, by the way, I did call a preset friend of mine and ran this by her. She lives in Florida. She was my teacher for many years, actually, when I lived overseas. And uh, she was all on board. She was so excited when she saw this, too. Tell me what you see in Deuteronomy 16, 16. Three times in a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Unleavened Bread. Now, which feast is that? Passover, okay, which is Pentecost, and and that is the tabernacle. And they shall not appear before the Lord unto him. Wow, three times. Well, as soon as I saw that word, three times, I went, oh, three times. He distinguished three times. Now we know there's a lot of little feasts because the first feast of of um, uh, Passover has got three feasts in it, right? I mean, they, it's Passover, unleavened bread, and uh, first fruits. First fruits, right? Then comes weeks, and then the last one is the is uh, what is it? Was it's um, hmm. the trumpets? The what was the second one? Atonement, and then feast of booths. So that also has three points to it in that one feast. But he says three feasts. He says, three times a year you shall come before me. And I thought, wow. Do you think that the Lord instituted honoring the triune God in his feasts? Yes. And appearing before the, the temple with not with empty hands three times. He doesn't say uh, seven times. He says three times. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I thought, Wow. Wasn't that 
amazing. I'd never seen that before, and I've never heard anybody teach on that. So I was a little worried that maybe I was going askew on it. But what I spoke with a girlfriend of mine. She said, no, I've actually heard that preached, but not quite that directly. She said, it's been more like a sideways thing. I've no, I'm, it's been said sort of in passing, but never directly stated. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is so cool. When you're studying something like the church... And you're studying something like these fulfillment of these feasts to see how God is accomplishing his predetermined plan. When this book, which is so loaded with predetermined plan ideas of God, his sovereign hand over it, you start to come to the surface. Cream just starts rising. And seeing these kind of insights puts a whole different perspective on some of these things for me. So I don't know about you guys, but I'm real excited. I want you to chew on that one, think on it. <laughs> Give yourself some time to ponder because you might get more excited after you think on it a little bit more. But I was really excited. So, so the Holy Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost to fulfill that feast, right? So he fulfilled... the Feast of Weeks... Right? And in that Feast of Weeks, so the day of Pentecost, that's when, um, and he did that just as Jesus fulfilled the Feast of Passovers, and just as at the appointed time, God will fulfill the Festival of Tabernacles. I just love that. I thought that was so cool. And then in conclusion, we found that the Holy Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost. So how, would you say now that that has a much more powerful like statement, and without adding that uh, feast of, or the feast of uh, Pentecost in there as a point, that you kind of miss a big point. I mean, this is huge. It shows you that predetermined plan, and it shows you the triune God involvement in the church itself. It's awesome. Okay, now, what is there anything else that you learned about in chapter two? In chapter one, how many people were were waiting in that upper room? About one hundred and twenty. When you hit chapter 2, what do you see as far as how many people are saved? 3,000. Well, that was a quick jump, wasn't it? All right. Now, chapter 3, what do we see happening? After that big explanation about Pentecost, you almost wonder if I've got the whole story, right? (laughs) I kept looking at 3 going, have I got it all? Have I got it all? Because I got so much out of chapter 2, I thought maybe I was missing something. What's going on in chapter 3? Mm-hmm. Yeah, is there a major verse in chapter 3 that really kind of culminates those two points of him being lame, uh, lame and healed, and then that G- uh, Jesus is preached? What healed the lame man? How was he healed? Faith in what? Faith in Jesus. In the name of Jesus, right? And and in no other name is salvation found, it says then in the next verse again. So in in 3.16, he he makes it really clear that, that although the full account of their giving the gospel to the lame man is not recorded. What they do is they record for us the conclusion of, of what was given to him. And then in 16, he says it was on the basis of faith in Jesus' name 
right, which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given this lame man his perfect health in the presence of you all. So the lame man obviously believed on the name of Jesus. So he got the full gospel message and believed on it. So in chapter 3, we see a miracle happening. We see the lame man is healed. And I'm just going to skip all the part about... um, how they got they do it but it it was in the name of jesus that's what was preached in order for that lame man to be healed right preaching is accompanied in this case by another sign or wonder is it not okay so we're seeing something repeated here that signs and wonders seem to be accompanying a, a lot of these events that are going on in this particular record. The apostles preached salvation by faith in the name of Jesus. In chapter 3, what were some of the names that you remember real quickly? What were some of the names that he's called by in chapter 3? The Nazarene, Jesus, the Christ, the Nazarene. God's Christ. The Prince of Life, the Holy One. The Righteous One. Yeah. So, in God's prophet that was raised up, that seed, the servant, I love that. Okay, so there's a lot of, of um, stated, very clearly stated names that could really develop for you what they're saying by say, in the name of Jesus. Not just speaking that name, Jesus, but it's all that is encompassed in what that name means. The truth message behind it, the power behind it, the, the truth of who he really is. As opposed to being simply a prophet, he is the seed that was promised. So he's fulfillment of God's word. And he is the servant of God who came to do the work that God predetermined, right? All right, chapter 4 then, what do we see? What did you title 4? What was going on in chapter 4? Pardon? Yes, there's a resistance or an opposition to the gospel that's going on here. And how do the apostles respond to that opposition? Yeah, so in spite of opposition, what do they keep doing? Preaching the gospel. So would you say that's another quality that shows us this historical record of that birthing of that church and the, gospel, and the spreading of the gospel? That although there's opposition to it, they keep preaching, right? And the rulers and the scribes and the elders and the chief priests, whatever, can't claim they never heard the gospel. Oh, boy. And that was really clear. By the time we got to day five, she went back and she said, now, how many times have they been told this before? What if, what, did they have this message given to them earlier in the book? Yeah, but even all the way back in chapter, was it two or three, where, where the ruler, I think it might have been three, where the rulers came to them and they gave them the gospel. And, they, and Peter actually says, by the way, you're the one that crucified him. Right. <laughs> you know, at the hand of evil men. So, yeah. So the apostles preach... In spite of opposition, uh, that's you know, to stop them basically, and that's in four nineteen. <clears throat> okay. All right. Now we're at chapter five. So that brought us up 
to where we want to be. And this is what Kay wanted you to do, to look at the flow of what you see going on concerning this historical record of the birthing of the church and how the teaching of doctrines is filtered throughout this whole thing. We see the apostles waiting for what was promised and what was promised was promised by the Father and also they had heard about it from Jesus. And and, and when, they, when we speak about the, the Father promised, you can put in here the prophets. Through his prophets, right? And the Holy Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost. When it fell, the Spirit came with signs, just as Jesus did. And the Spirit came fulfilling scripture, just as Jesus did. And the Spirit came and fulfilled the Feast of Weeks, just as Jesus fulfilled the Feast of, of uh, Passover. So those are three really profound points that I think were not quite as crystallized for us before this morning that I think will be helpful in continuing to build then on what we see about how the church is birthed and how God's predetermined plan is truly being fulfilled in all the things that we're witnessing here. And sometimes, for me at least, um, it seems like sometimes... God switches subjects or something. It's like you're going along and you're looking about a a picture like in the case of the the falling of the Holy Spirit. And then all of a sudden he he does a switch. He talks about Old Testament prophets. Then he does a switch again, talks about some things that Jesus did. And in my mind, I'm going, I'm trying to connect all this. I'm like, what's the flow here that makes sense? Why it just feels so disjointed. But does it now? You see the continuity here. It's a comparison. He's saying, just like this, so did the Spirit. And what he's doing is he's validating the role of the Holy Spirit in the church. And he's validating it through what Jesus did as, through the power and the signs and the wonders and through the fulfillment of Scripture and through the fulfillment of the, of the feasts. Okay, so now we're ready to go on and look at what we looked at in chapter uh, 5, the end of chapter 4 as well, but also into 5. Okay, open this up. All right, so let's just look at the first, look at the obvious. What do we see in chapter 4 and into 5? What is the contrast between the closing of chapter 4 and then the opening of 5, 1 through 11? Okay, there's a contrast between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. So what was the, the major contrast there between these two? What was being showed to us as far as the church is concerned. Okay, Barnabas was the son of consolation. That was the translation mm-hmm. of his name. Mm-hmm. He had a piece of property, he sold it, and he brought all the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay. Then Ananias and Sapphira also had property. They sold it, but they only brought part of the money and claimed it was all Right, money. exactly. Okay, and the, it's just by implication that we come to that conclusion. It doesn't directly say they didn't bring it all. It's, it simply says that, that they came and brought it and put it at the feet of the apostles. But then how do we know that, that in fact, they did lie about it? What, what did Peter do when they brought this money and laid it at the feet of the apostles? He challenges them or rebukes them at this point and says, no, wait, wait, wait. Why are you doing this? And what does he accuse them of? Does he accuse them of not giving enough money? Does he accuse them of saying, well, why didn't you sell other properties or more properties? He said you were lying. Yes, it was about the lie. So there was obviously a lie that took place which pertained to the fact of them coming and laying money at the feet, just as Barnabas had done in the previous 
account. So there's the contrast. That it's, it's what Ananias and Sapphira did um, in relationship to what Barnabas did. Barnabas, who is the son of encouragement, right? This, this um, uh, apostle who is lifted up as an example, right, of what the believers were doing in that early church. What does this tell you about the church, even right from its inception? It's holy. It is holy, and the reason we know it's holy is... Well, God is holy. But why do you say that, Craig? I'm, I'm curious. Mm-hmm. We even know that at this point, based on you know the Gospels and, and some of the other things. But uh, it's the line against the Holy Spirit was the real issue here, which means that that's which is unholy. Okay, so I think what I can, I'm going to move you forward just a little bit and try to clarify a little bit. But the response of God to what they did shows us that the church is supposed to be holy. Yeah. Impure. Impure. So what is the characteristic or the quality then that God expects for us as the church that we're learning about the birthing of the church and what he expects from us? That we are to be holy and and pure and not lie. How many of you have had relationships with people in your life that they lie? How destructive is that one sin? Would you would how, do you rate it higher or lower than a lot of the other things that can happen? I rate it high. Oh boy, do I! Because it keeps building. And if you cannot trust a person, then the foundation of your relationship with them is utterly destroyed because you can't believe anything they say, you can't rely on anything they say, well, you, can, you can't, you can't, it's totally, and we looked at one verse in John about the devil, what, what did we learn about the devil? He's a father of lies, yeah. you can't tell the truth. Right, and so when Ananias and Sapphira were challenged by Peter, Peter said about, about them that, that they had lied and who had filled their heart? Satan had filled their heart to lie, right? But he didn't, he didn't lay the whole blame in, in the lap of Satan, though, did no. Because then he restated it again in verse 4, and he said, who had conceived this? Who conceived to do this thing? Well, the first one was Satan put it in your heart to lie. That's in verse 3. But in verse 4, then he says, who, who conceived it? They did, and it was in their heart. Now, this could be a whole, you could spend a whole week on just studying about this kind of thing, this particular subject of, you know, the idea of deception and how, how uh, Satan, uh, he's the devil, he prowls about to and fro to seek whom he could, can devour, to seek those whom he can devour. He desires to see us trip up. Now, the good thing is this, that those who are in faith can... Uh, can the devil overcome us in a way as to uh, us to be uh, lost out of the hand of the grip of God? If, in no. fact, you're in the grip of God, if you're in the hand of God, neither height nor depth nor principalities nor powers, right? That's Nothing can separate us from the love of God. We know that. That's, that's what. That's exactly right. Good job. <laughs> Romans 8 teaches us that. Um, however, 
he is a deceiver, and so he can deceive the hearts of believers. Now, there, there is a bit of a debate in here about Ananias and Sapphira, and that is, you know, are they believers, are they not believers, right? Um, the scripture doesn't tell us, but here's what I want to point out to you to consider when you think about this account. This account. Peter is, or um, uh, um, Luke is recording this to, sh- to demonstrate to us that early in the church, problems begin to arise. So it's not a flawless church. We're supposed to be a holy church, but there was, there's a problem. The church is made up of sinners, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> yes, forgiven, but not perfect, right? right? And in this case, both Ananias and Sapphira are claiming to be Christian, correct? They're, they're a part of that body. They are walking and talking and dwelling and living among them, and they go and sell a piece of property and try to, in a deceptive way, bring a gift to the church, but to do it as believers, right? Just as Barnabas... Pride has gotten in their heart. Yes, yes. But we have to assume that even... Because the Scripture doesn't say, yes, they're believers or no, they're not believers. We don't know. But here's what, what we do know. They claim to be and they're affiliated with. And therefore, how does God hold them in accountability? Does he hold them in accountability? Does he judge them? So what is God trying to protect? Is he doing this just to make the point to them, or is he trying to make a bigger picture point? Bigger picture. Okay, so tell me what you've concluded as you look at Ananias and Sapphira. Well, he's vindicating his holy name with the covenant, and this is part of that second covenant. So there you go. He's vindicating his holy name. Very, Very good, Craig. Boy, that's a big jump you took. That was good. Um, that is exactly right, because... When Ananias and Sapphira are claiming to be a part of the body of Christ, then they are representing whom? Christ. Christ himself. They've put on that cloak, that robe that says on the back of it, I belong to Jesus. They've got their crown on. I'm a child of the king. And they're walking about planet earth in their community, pretending at least to be, if they're not truly. I mean, they could be. They could truly be. Can can Christians... Slip sure. up in this way on occasion? Have you ever slipped up and sinned yes. since you've become a believer? Yes. Okay, I'm so glad to find out I'm not alone <laughs> because it's good to know that I'm not the only sinner in the church. But, you know, God says that his desire is that we not live in such a way, that we, di- that we misrepresent who he is because if we're in covenant with him, then we must have an a- identity with him. When we went into the uh, Gospel of John and we saw Jesus' high holy prayer just before he went to the cross, one of the things that he prayed for his church was what? That they be what? One. That they unite in, in identity and in, in oneness of unity. And, and then the unity or the oneness would be demonstrated then by what? It exhibited externally how? By love. So if you're in oneness with God, then you're going to be living out love. Would you say this kind of a lie demonstrates oneness with God in love? No. No. And so in that, tell me then, what do you think about what God did here? Would you say this was rather swift and sudden and... Severe. There yes. you go. I hated to use that word, but that's exactly. It seems teach severe. Them a lesson. Why? Because what happened is the others were looking at them also, and if God let that go, 
Then that meant his church was not holy or pure. Mm -hmm. Right now we're seeing something that's uh, that's initially being birthed, correct? Um, Does God continue to be this severe with every believer through the generations? I mean, I think we'd all be greasy spots if that were the case. (laughs) Wouldn't you think? We'd all be feet up and buried somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. And some were weak, and some were sick, and some had fallen asleep. First Corinthians chapter 11, that's right. That's right. So he can take a life of a believer. So that's a, would you say that would be a doctrine that we are learning about the, this new entity called the church, that in it, then there, there, God says there is an accountability, that, that there's going to be discipline, and that there's going to be an accountability for God's church. Now... Aren't we thankful that he isn't that severe always? However, would you say that there are probably people in your life that you can think of um, or people that you've heard of through storylines that God did judge in that way, that there was something pretty final about the way he finally, that was it? His name had been defamed to an extent that finally he took their life. He removed them. Now, we, we don't have the time, and we did not do it in our homework, but there are examples of where God was going to take the life of, for instance, um, uh, was it Abraham? Who brought the Moses. So, sorry, not Abraham. Moses. When Moses was going to lead the people out of Egypt, and he had not yet circumcised his own son. And in not doing that, then God was holding him accountable. He says, look, you're leading my people to be a circumcised people, a set-apart people, um, those who are distinguished and marked as mine through the sign of this uh, circumcision, and you haven't even circumcised your own son. And so God put him on his deathbed, and what did Sapphira do, his wife? Uh, Not Sapphira, um, Zipporah. Those names are also similar. (laughs) Zipporah, Zipporah, Sapphira, you know. (laughs) Yes, she circumcised him and... Through that, that foreskin at the feet of her husband. And, and so we know then that this is something that has happened even in the Old Testament where God has held people accountable to live up to covenant, right? In this new thing, of, in the falling of the Holy Spirit, this is the initiating of a new covenant, correct? Ezekiel 36 says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you in that day. Remove your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh place my spirit within you, right? So we know this is the new covenant and that this is what God says. So we, we see that, number one, their sin was that they lied. And we know that they lied, lied to who? God and Holy Spirit. Now, here's another point. When it said that they lied to God and to the Holy Spirit, had they actually lied to God and the Holy Spirit as far as on the earthly realm of things? Who were they lying to? To the people in that congregation, right? So, again, what this alludes to then is in covenant, when we offend one another, who, who are we also offending? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Have you, ever con- have you ever considered that in your life? That when you offend another believer, that you're actually offending God. 
That take, does, would you say that takes our offenses to a different level? Yeah. Kind of makes you feel a little bit more, um, yikes. I mean, we have always known that if we offend someone, we're to go back and to try to make it right. Yeah. Corinthians yeah. talks about that too in 11. I'm sorry, say it again. It even goes to the point where when we sin, we are offending God. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. But I think that so often we feel like when we are in relationship with people, if I say something unkind and I hurt your feelings, that the actuality of God's perspective of it is, I'm not just hurting Brenda, but I'm hurting God and I'm hurting the household of faith who is observing me and I'm calling myself a Christian, and by that I also defame God's name. Wow. This, this is pretty, gets kind of deep, doesn't it? So lied to God, lied to the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and then the second thing it said besides lying is, is what did it say in verse 9 that they had done? Yeah, they put the spirit of the Lord to the test. Now, can someone explain that? Can anyone explain what that means to put God to the test or to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Yeah, testing God, testing the Spirit out to see if He's going to respond. Is God going to protect His name? Is there going to be a righteous anger against this new entity called the covenant? In the old covenant, was there a consequence for people who broke covenant? Yes. What? What? They could die, or they could be cast out or exiled right so now we're in this new thing now we're saying to us in this new thing since we're learning the historical record of this new entity called the church what we're seeing here then is that in this new covenant there are also consequences there is going to be discipline for those who number one lie to god and then number two don't test him don't, don't, don't stick your toe in the water to see if god will or t- stick your toe across the line in the sand i hate to use that phrase but yeah, right. Don't poke him in his eye, right? There you go. That's exactly right. God is the same yesterday. Today. That's right. So in the birthing of the church, he's establishing that, the, that God is not changed in perspective to righteous behavior of his, of his children. He expects them, number one, not to lie. And if we lie to one another because we're in covenant with God first... We, in our relationship with one another, anything I do against Marion, I actually do against exactly. God himself. And that's how we need to perceive it. That's, that's right. pretty powerful teaching. I, I mean, we could chew on that one all day. <laughs> really? Mm-hmm. In verse 2, it says that they kept back some of the prize for himself with his wife's full knowledge, bringing a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now that said to me, that they, it was a lack of faith. They didn't believe 
God could take care of. You know, there you can go into the gift of giving too, or the idea of that ministry of giving that we have that we're asked to give of God to give to God. Um, But in this case, was this a free will gift or was this a required like tithing gift? This was a free will thing. And so the fact that, that, I mean, Peter makes it clear then when he says, look, did that land not belong to you before you sold it? And did those proceeds not belong to you and were at your disposal after you sold it? But when you brought it to the disciples and laid it at their feet and made a proclamation as if you gave something that you really didn't give, that's where the problem lies. Yes, Lisa. Possibly. And thought, well, we'll get that too, but we won't make that type of sacrifice. Right. That's real possible. We don't know the motives. That part isn't even addressed in here. But boy, that's a whole nother bucket of worms we could get into is what do you think was going on in their mind? What about in your own mind when you give sometimes and you're, you're thinking, well, you know, everybody's expecting me to give this much, and, but I'm only going to give this much. And, you know, I mean, it's one of those things that we play a game. And what's, what's important for us to remember is up to this point, God has already shown us in his word, in this, in this birthing of this church, does God know everything? He knows everything. Is everything laid open and big? Yes, he knows the end from the beginning, and it's all, it's all already in the mind of God. He is the sovereign God who knows all things. He's omnipotent. He's all, in, uh, not, he's all powerful, but he's also omniscient. He's all-knowing. So we can't hide this from God. And in that, how did Peter come to know that they had lied? The Holy Spirit. Ha uh-huh. There was some kind of a Holy Spirit revelation. It, it, you know, have you ever had an occurrence like that where you've been talking to somebody and all of a sudden you just know they're lying? And it, and it may be that God has given you enough pieces of other information and you just kind of put it all together. And then by the Spirit within you who's protecting you from that person... All of a sudden, it becomes clear to you what's going on. And it seems like this is what happened with Peter. They don't explain that part of it. But what we can assume is that by the power of the Spirit, Peter saw beyond what was going on here. Either he just knew that that land had to be worth more, Mm -hmm. and therefore he just figured this out. But I believe the implication here is that the Spirit of God is protecting his church and the and the character and the morality of its members are important. That's right. So their, their sin was this, this lying to God in the Holy Spirit and putting the Spirit of the Lord to the test. In other words, testing uh, or maybe not believing, right, that God would, uh, uh, that God would hold them accountable for it, that God would respond to their lies, right? As in the Old Testament. As in the Old Testament covenant, he did. And they knew that. These are Jews just coming out of Judaism. They know the, the Old Testament laws, and lying would not have been tolerated in that system of faith either. What was one of the first of the Ten Commandments? 
Thou shalt not lie, <laughs> right? So it's right there at the top of the list of things that thou shalt not do. And so God says if you do these things, there will be consequence. And for anyone who does lie, they had, to, they had to, number one, repent. They had to bring a sacrifice for the forgiveness of that sin. There was a process, right? In this new covenant, God is showing them you can't do it in this covenant either. I like that one. Do you, do you remember where in Hebrews that verse is? He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Is that Hebrews 11? Okay, well, someone look that one up because I want to put that on here. I think it's Hebrews, right? Same yesterday. T- today and forever. We're going to put this on because it's really good. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Can you ever mess with God's holiness? No. Yeah. No. Okay. It doesn't matter. What That's right. Do. So if you look at some of God's character, mm-hmm. like holiness, you name it. Right. Now, how might that tie into even how in this book, in the birthing of the church, that it's in Jesus' name that we are saved? Is it not the identity of this triune God that everything is encompassed? His holiness, his righteousness, his justice, his, the fact that he is sovereign, that he's all-knowing. You can't hide anything from God. He's going to find you out. He knows. And one day you give account for every word uttered, right? Now, we in faith are forgiven of the sin, but the rest of the things go through the fire that we might get rewarded. So are you living in such a way as to receive rewards? Or will you be losing out on rewards because you didn't do it well? That's the question, right? In VBS, when I was teaching the children, I was telling them that have you lied or you did something bad that you didn't tell God that you were doing? And they said, "Um, well, I would hide and not tell God. Mm -hmm. And I said, do you know God that knows everything? He sees everything mm-hmm. you do. You can't hide from him. Think of the story of in the Garden of Eden with Adam yeah. and Eve. What was the first thing that Adam and Eve tried to do? They tried to hide they from tried, God in the garden. They, yeah, they and did. to cover themselves with leaves, they That's understood right. that their nakedness had been exposed. All right. So then, So that was their sin. The consequence... The consequence for the church is what? Sinners do what? Sinners die. That's the principle. Now, it doesn't mean they always die. It doesn't mean you and I always die, because if if that were true, we would all be dead in this room, every one of us. I guarantee it. Um, Pardon? That's right. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Well, in a general sense, you could also say there's discipline. Yes. I was just going to put that. God disciplines... Uh, uh, and protects his church, right? That's what we're learning here, is that he disciplines his church and he, and he protects his church. He's really ultimately, as uh, Craig mentioned earlier, he's actually protecting his holy name because that is one of the most important things about pastors and leaders and so forth. And they talk about what are the qualifications of elders, you know, that they must be men of, 
of good repute and, and yes, those of one wife, but not given to much wine and all these things, these things, not because it's the external that qualifies them as far as salvation, but it's what qualifies them to represent God in that higher position as a leader, right? So you want your leaders. Um, I worked, when I was working for Marketplace, that was one of the things they also required is that we had all these high markers. And if any one of those markers was not met, they would not hire us. And, you know, and, and one of them was the, the husband of but one wife. So that one was a sticky one because they said, you know, it's not that we're condemning people who have been through a divorce and, and are now remarried. We're not doing that. But what we're saying is that for those who are going to represent our company, we want a high standard, just like the church is to have that high standard. So this is what God, I think, is showing us. In the birthing of the church, we're seeing this is the first discipline that takes place. And he's showing us that there's that this dynamics of covenant, this new covenant, really he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will protect his holy name, and he will purge sin, right? That's his desire. And his desire is that we be holy, right? Be holy as he is holy. All right. And so then the result of this was what? Yeah, fear among all the people who heard about it. This fear, what kind of fear would you say this is? Is this a fear like shaking in their boots and falling down scared and they can't move? It's a holy reverential fear. Fear of God himself. Fear of God, reverence. That's reverential, right? It's a reverential fear. Great fear came over all who heard of it. Great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. Those are in, that's in verse 5 and 11. So it's repeated twice. So what was the author's purpose then in recording this particular account in, five, in chapter 5, 1 to 11? And you can go back to 4 also and show the contrast. But what was the point to this? Let's just make a list here of some things. Author's purpose. Okay, God disciplines and protects his, his name or his, and that being also his church, right? Okay, what else? Yeah, it's to discourage Any further sin in that regard? In other words, he holds he holds his uh, his believers accountable to holy to holy living. However, you want to say that you can say it in a variety of ways. But yeah, Christian character and discipline are important, right? They're important parts of the church and the life of Christ. When you get sinned against, are you more hurt when it's a fellow brother or sister in Christ or when it's just the world? Absolutely, it hurts more when it's a trusted believer. When, when I get offended by someone who's in the household of faith, I'm actually pretty stunned. I kind of feel like, wow, where did that come from? Because that's supposed to be my brother or my sister. And they're supposed to be loving me and accepting me. And, you know, certainly discipline needs to be there if I've stepped out of line. But for them to, if they have, quote, offended me, and in this case, Ananias and Sapphira offended. Right. 
and it was un, uh, unprovoked. They weren't being challenged to, or forced into doing what they did. They did it of their own free volition, and yet when they did it, they lied. So they inflicted this pain on the hearts of those who were there. When, do you think that when the believers found out that they had lied about this, that they were like, whoa? Yeah. You know, Peter, I'm sure, he was like, wow, what were they thinking, right? And hurt, like, I can't believe they did this. Why would they do this? You know, they didn't have to. They didn't have to, they didn't have to lie. They didn't even have to sell their land. They could have kept it. They could have kept anything. Sure. Yeah. We've decided to give, you know, 10% or 50% or 80%. Of course they would have. But they lied, and this was, this was the problem. And then, you know, when you're disciplining or like a classroom, and you make a rule in the classroom, and the first person who breaks it, you have to make, a, you have to make an, an example of the first person who breaks it. And so this is what, you know, this is good for teachers. Thank you. Okay, and I might not be quite stating that the correct way, but, but basically, if you offend your brothers and sisters, you've offended God. Okay? That's, I think that, is that not motivating to us to try to, you know, do that better maybe? Um, also, when they fell down dead, how would you describe that event? They breathed their last and they died. Now, we did go in and look at some verses about breathing your last. Who holds your life in the palm of God's hand? Who holds it? And when you received life, who breathed life into, the, into your body and into your nostrils? The Father. The Father did. God himself breathed life into man. Um, I, we didn't go there, but I, one of my favorite ones is in Daniel uh, chapter 5, where he's talking to um, Belshazzar and they're writing on the wall, remember? And he says to him, your very life breath is in the hand of God. And, he, and him you don't honor. They, it was, they were doing toasting to the, the gods of wood and stone and all these things. He right. says, but you don't even honor God. And in his hand is your life breath. And it was taken from him that very hour. So, again, what we see then is that God's in control of this, of, of discipline. And he, in other words, and God can take our life. If he so chooses, God can take our life for sin, right? It doesn't mean he always does, but can he? What is the principle that we're learning here? Can he? Yeah, he can. Well, will he? Will he? And he, and he might. And he might. So how would that make you live then as a believer in this new entity called the church? In a great fear, a sense of, a sense of understanding that you can't hide anything from God. And if you are hiding anything from God and you need to get that cleared up, you need to do it quickly. There is hope, even for the Christian in faith. You don't have to die. You just have to confess and make it right. Fix it. Turn around. Repent, right? Okay. Um, this supernatural event proved to the church that God is watching, right? So for you and I, we go into the New Testament, and we see um, 
the letters to the churches and we see Jesus is among the candlesticks and that he walks among his churches, right? We see that demonstrated through that, that particular vision. Well, in this record here in the book of Acts, we also see that God is present, he's watching, and he's guarding or protecting his church. Whether we, f- we see him fully do that to the extent that we wished he would sometimes, but aren't you glad that there's so much grace in his, because what if it, what, when it is us that's doing the offending, aren't we glad that he's patient and forgiving? Yes, there's full of mercy. Uh, discipline, what, and what, what purpose is discipline then in this new thing called the church? Well, they still have to see, like we already said, if you're accountable, mm-hmm. God will discipline you. Sometimes it's obvious, and sometimes it's just. Right. Would you say this discipline was was more for Ananias and Sapphira, or was it more for those who were observing? Yeah. There is a principle about discipline in, in your families, in our world, in this nation. Often discipline is not really as directly related to the person who did it so much as it is also powerful in the lives of those who are observing it. Um, remember in Ezekiel when we read, uh, God said, look, you observed your sister doing these things and you didn't, you didn't even repent. You didn't change your ways. So now I'm going to judge you too, Judah, right? Remember that? All right. So discipline is, is not only to judge the guilty person and to purge sin, which by the way, God does hate, but it also teaches a healthy fear of God, that reverential fear of God. God. Okay. So, um, the last one we want to do now then is, is we want to look at the opposition and the growth that goes on there just very quickly. It won't take us long to go through this. I'm not going to go through um, all, the whole chapter and, and so forth, but what we want to do is look at the fellowship and the lives of the believers. What kind of things were going on? So I want to develop an analytical list about what kinds of things we see going on in, in just chapter 5 at this point. Well, one of the, I'm going to get you started. Chapter 5, verse 12, what is the first thing you see? (coughs) Signs and wonders. So, and when these signs and wonders came, we already know about the signs and wonders, that they're an indication that God is with them, right? In this case, signs and wonders came in response to something that happened back in chapter 4. Do you remember what what they asked of God in chapter 4? Go back to 429 and 30. Right. So when you're looking at the idea of fellowship and the lives of the believers in this early church, what's being demonstrated to us is one of the first things we see is that God hears our prayer and he answers, right? We see that God actually responded to their request for a continuation of these signs and wonders that they would come uh, as a a proof text or as a validation to the power of God uh, in their midst. So we see the many signs and wonders in this church. In 512. But and we also see that as answered prayer. So we know then that God hears and responds. And that was in chapter 4, um, 29 and 30. So now tell me what else do we see shown to us? 
If you're describing the church just from this chapter, that's kind of what I'm, I'm asking you to do, is look at chapter 5, and how would you describe this early church? What are we learning about the early church through what we're seeing going on here? Well, going back to the first, first 11 chapters would be, that's right, have that fear opposite. So we also see, have that reverential fear, have reverential fear. Well, but the, but the one who caused them to die was who? God. I mean, Peter didn't pull out a knife and lop off an ear, right? He, they just fell down dead. So this was God that there was a fear of and instilled in them at that moment, right? Have a reverential fear. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, stalling exactly our study. Oh, wonderful. I know. And it is really good. You know what? And I have a video that, that you know, takes you through the book of Acts, and you can watch it kind of like a play. And as they, they demonstrate the play, it's word for word right from the text. So maybe I'll bring that next week, and we'll just watch a little bit of it just to kind of, it really is good. It's really a great way of seeing that. Okay, what else do we see, Martha? Well, it just seems like it's, the church is kind of at a high point where they're, among the people, they're still held in quite high esteem, and they're just okay. growing okay. All right, there is, uh, we see great esteem from the people um, of their leaders, right? It, it was the esteem of the people of Peter himself, specifically it speaks of Peter there, but it would be of any leader, right? It's seen, and also what do we see in them when, when they come looking for Peter in the city? Because they've heard of him and they know of him. They have this great high esteem. What's their expectation when they encounter him? Well, the, true. I mean, they may, but that's not what the implication is in the text. The text is talking about that even if his shadow would touch them, then what? They would have healing. So what we learned back in chapter 3 about the lame man being healed, how does that healing come? Right, not by a shadow falling on you, obviously, right? Although that's mentioned there. What is so, when they mention the shadow, do you think they really think there's a supernatural thing about just a shadow? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. But what have we learned in here about, what have we learned in this record so far about how healing comes? It comes through the name of Jesus. So I think that what it shows you is what she just says. They had such great esteem that the idea was, if I can just get in his presence, I don't know that they really expected the shadow to heal them, but they just felt like they had such high esteem for these men, and powers and wonders and miracles were being performed so greatly through them at this point that they decided, if I can just get there. So to me, what that shows is this great esteem that they had for him uh, brought faith. It brought about faith in the people. Ah, there you go. Good question. 
Good question. Okay, good question. How would if you were going to make a contrast out in the obs, in, in the aisle of your observation worksheet, like I always tell you to do? What verse are you in again? Uh, okay, verse thirteen, five thirteen. How would you contrast what's being said there? Do you see the word "but"? Okay, and so and so, how, who are these two people groups? So it's going to be con- believers contrasted with non-believers. Yeah. Well, we can. Yeah. 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 Well, you can. You can. You certainly know that amongst the people in general, there are going to be those who come just for the show, and they're just there for. They're there for all the wrong reasons. But that's. But what's being taught to us, I think by the demonstration of what we're seeing and what's being read here. Since what we're doing is we're looking at a historical record of the birthing of the church. We don't want to get wrapped around the what-ifs and the maybes. and the what if. We're saying, what is it demonstrating to us? We're, we're seeing demonstrates that they had such great esteem in Peter that they came. They're thinking, just the shadow comes on me. I got it, right? But it, but it shows because of what we've already established before that through the layman that, that healing is in the name of Jesus only. So we know it's by faith in Jesus that they get healing. So what we're seeing is this great esteem of Peter brings people to faith. Now, my question to you would be, let me, let me finish my thought. What kind of responsibility then does that put on you and me? Are we to live in such a manner and live our lives as Peter did so that we have the highest, the kind of high esteem that would cause people to come that they might be healed? And I mean spiritually healed. Right? Okay, um, Janice. Yes. Yes. So, but the first part of 13, none of the rest dare to associate. That's the contrast. And then after that, then you see people coming who, who are either already believers or are seeking that relationship with God. Right. I think in all the more believers in the Lord, uh, see, where's the word they? Give me the verse you're in. 15, to an extent extent that they even carried the sick. Yes, that would be the believers and the multitudes who did seek after this man, Peter, whom they held in great high esteem. And they came, they were brought. It had to be an action of faith if they were actually getting healed because you're not going to get healed just by a shadow falling. You and I know that. So they came, obviously, by faith. That's the conclusion we can have. And the reason we can draw that conclusion is because we go back to this. This is why she said, get your storyline. Go back and get your flow of thought. We know that the layman is healed. How? In the name of Jesus. So with that established, then when it talks about the shadow falling, what brought them? This great esteem that they had for Peter. Peter was living in such a high esteem way that the people were coming They were hearing his message. They were seeing the power of it. Do you remember when the rulers um, heard Peter and the other apostles preaching? And they said, we know that they're untrained and uneducated. 
Would you yes. say that there, was, that there was a great sense of power about the way that they were preaching, that it impressed yes. even the rulers who are the trained and educated? Mm -hmm. Okay, so with all that in, in mind, then when Peter has this such great esteem that the people are coming, this is what I think the, the point is in this particular part of the flow of thought. He, they're showing you the leadership, being Peter in this case, his, his walk, his talk, his actions, um, all of these things led people to be drawn to him. And the Sadducees and the others were filled with jealousy. Yes. Yes, and then the response was they're jealous. Exactly. Okay, anything else that we're learning about the church here in this account? What she was saying, they're growing, like they're multiplying. Okay. Okay, so let's put on here those of faith uh, grew in number. And uh, many were being healed. Now that can be both physical and spiritual at that point, but we know that they came, and others, they came fully expecting to be healed, right? I am so glad so far you guys are hitting every one of my points on my paper. <laughs> so I didn't make it up. <laughs> it actually is in there. Okay. And the rulers being filled with jealousy. So what we can also see is, is they had this high esteem, but the contrast then is the rulers were jealous. Right. Now, did you look at the difference in the meanings of those two things? <laughs> oh, well, okay. Well, I'm so glad you did. Um, let's see. Let me see. I cannot tell a lie. <laughs> Very funny. You guys are getting clever. I love it. <laughs> um, let me see. Okay, what verses are you in? <clears throat> okay. Um, K, I don't know if it was in K's or in one of the commentaries I read, but there's another translation in one of the other Bibles, another different Bible translation. Instead of saying cut to the quick, it says enraged. Furious. furious. That's another word, furious. So if we had done a word study on that cut to the quick, it's talking about their anger. And we know that's absolutely a great translation because then what does it say about them that they wanted to do to them? And they, they intended to kill them, right? Cut to, the cut to the heart, exactly. Cut to the quick or cut to the heart. Now, that could sound like repentance in, in our English thinking, right? This is why sometimes it's really, you have to be really careful to observe the full text in order to make sure that you understand exactly what's being said. It's not saying that they were feeling, feeling repentive. No. It's saying they were enraged and angry. And then the next, very next statement is, and they wanted to kill them. So that's how you know that that is a really good translation. So in our New American Standard, cut to the quick is probably not the best translation. You might want to pencil in on your own personal Bible that, it, that it's the word enraged or furious. Or furious. When, you, when you look that word up, <clears throat> it says to over, they were 
indignation. There you go, envy and outrage. Perfect. So, see, a word study on that would solve your problem on that. But yet, on the other one, be, the idea of being cut to the quick, and then you see what that means in that particular context, because then their next question is, what can we do, right? What can we do? They want to respond to this new message that they have, that they, that they need to repent, right? I just mm-hmm. thought it was a different response to the Spirit's conviction. Mm-hmm. The Spirit That's so good. Or you reject. Now, that's when Kay took us to look at all those other verses. She said, go in and look at, um, oh, where was it that we looked at? Um, Yeah, it could be. Yes, yes. Yeah, so yeah, we looked at Luke 10, John 10, John 6. This is all on page 64 of your homework, where we looked at the varying responses. In the Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, it talks about the piercing, right, that the word of God is active, living, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, and so forth. So it's, it's showing you that idea of piercing of the heart, right? So there is two kinds of responses. One is a, a piercing of the heart, which then, if you, belong, if you are um, sensitive to the Holy Spirit, if you're seeking God, as they were in the earlier chapter where they said, well, what can we do? You know, they wanted to do something. It was a positive response. Or you can see what the rulers did, where they were enraged and they intended to kill them. So what does that tell you and I about our witnessing moments with people? What are the two possible outcomes? Or rejection. Are we in control of the response? No. What are we in control of? Telling the message. Tell me what Ezekiel says to us. Do you remember Ezekiel? What did Ezekiel teach us? You are a watchman over my house Israel. And what are you to do concerning the message if you hear a word from God? You must speak it to them. And if you don't speak it to them, what? The blood is on your hand. That's right. The blood is on your head. And if you do speak it and they reject it or they don't respond as they should, what? Then it's on them. But do we have a responsibility to give the word of God when we have opportunity? Absolutely. That's what we learned in Ezekiel. See, Ezekiel came back again. Aren't you excited? I love it. <laughs> okay, what else did we learn in, in our, uh, concerning opposition and growth of the church in chapter 5? What? Pardon? Yes, they full, that there is obedience. That uh, Those of faith, so be those of faith are obedient to God. And it's, and, it's, and it's a quick response with them, right? What verse are you in on that? Can you give me a verse? No? Okay. Well, if you see a verse, let me know, and I'll stick it up here. When they said when they were in jail, and an angel let them out, said, hey, go stand and speak There's a good one. Okay, and that was what verse? That was, um, that was 19 and 20. 
Okay. Yeah, he told them, go. Oh, what I loved about that one, what did he tell them to go and do? Tell what? Tell them what? But how much of it? The whole story. Now, in the context of the flow of what's going on right here, what is he saying to them? What is the whole story that they maybe they need to be adding to their gospel message? Yes, it's in the name of Jesus. Jesus is the Prince of Life. He's the Christ. He's all these things. But what else are they to tell him besides that part of the message? What's going on to these apostles right here? persecution and suffering, right? And unjust suffering, being put in jail for proclaiming the gospel. So the whole message, verse 18, verse 40, verse 33 also, if you look in, in 40, hold on, 540, I'll flip it over. And they took his advice and after calling the apostles in, what happened to them? They were flogged. So are you willing, do you know that the gospel message also uh, contains within it that that the person who wants to come into a one or a unity with God must also be willing sometimes to suffer. And potentially, God can, can free you from that like he did in the jail situation. He can do a supernatural thing and set you free. But on the other hand, he may allow you to go through suffering. And in this case, they were flogged. So, wow, what are, we're learning a lot in there about that, just from that particular demonstration. Okay, we are getting close. We, yes, yes. We're getting close to that point where we're going to start to see the, the persecution being so great that then that it will force them, which is very interesting. So when God said in chapter 1, verse 8, that you will be my witnesses, and he said you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Judea in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, um, do you think that they would have spread out had things been just great. They were, they were enjoying fellowship with one another. They were breaking a bread with one another. I mean, they were fat, happy, and sassy. And they were just having a great old time. Would they have moved out? No. Do you? On the whole, the answer is no. If you are happy and content, have you ever had a scenario in your personal faith walk with God where God has made you uncomfortable enough that you've had to make a change? Either a switch in a church or a switch in, in a venue of a Bible study or uh, in relationships that you have that you either had to cut them off or you had to engage one or the other. That, that through processes of of events, God causes you to move so that what happens for you? You grow and you stretch and you grow and you stretch. And so this is both uh, purifying to the believer, but it's also enhancing to the body of Christ on the whole. I know that through the years, I moved and moved and moved and moved, mainly because of the military. But in those moments of moving from church to church to church, I kept growing and growing and growing. And because I did not get pigeonholed in one place, I was allowed to continue to grow in my experiences and in my abilities, right? And this is a healthy thing for the body of Christ. So as you are asked to move out of your comfort zone, just know that this too is of the Lord. He's, He's going to sometimes impose difficult things. So floggings, jailing, all this, too, is part of God's predetermined plan. 
that he might bread, spread this gospel as he said. Mm-hmm. Probably those who, in that moment, they caught, you know, preaching the gospel and that they were upset with. Well, it's plural, and if Peter's not alone, and 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 just as today, most most preachers or teachers or evangelists don't work alone; they work in groups generally. And even when Jesus sent out the evangelists, they went out two by two, right? So, um, you know, no, I say it's Peter. Yes, Peter is apparently the, the leader of the pack, right? He seems to be the one that's rising to the surface right now as far as leadership. But there were others with him. That's... When they bring him back, they, they find him out of the portico, so they go bring him back in front of him, and it says Peter and the apostles answered. And that's on 29. <coughs> um, and when it speaks about Solomon's portico, Co. Also, one other quality of the birthing of this church, of this both the opposition and the growth. What does opposition often do besides scattering people? What else does it do? In five twelve, it tells us something. What was the result of the of the the body of believers became one accord? Have you ever had a scenario in your life where opposition of external people causes you to band together with those who are basically in your camp of agreement, right? And so in this, we see that sometimes opposition that God uses, even against us today, through the external things in our world, it causes us to band together and to become one accord and and united. Now, when we see this reference of one accord, what did we learn this week about that? Yeah, Jesus prayed for that for us. And when, when uh, he says in, ver- in John 13, 35, he says, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, right? So what is love a marker for or a marker of? Unity, Unity and of? Who, who does it identify? What does love identify? Christians. They will know you are Christians by your love. So it's an identifying marker of a Christian. So a person who does not love, First John says, if you do not love, what? You, don't know God. you do not know God. That's, a, that's the bottom line. So First John 3 says, he who does not love, he abides where? In death. Now that's a pretty serious charge. Have you ever known some Christians who have a hard time really showing or demonstrating love on a regular basis? They need to work on that, wouldn't you say? And if you're one of them, Well, this is the birthing of the church, and he's showing us some basic principles. And one of the most basic of them is that there's to be a oneness. And how is oneness most clearly identified by someone who's looking in? Our love for one another. Why is it that love is one of the most important qualities of a believer? In covenant, we are one with God. And who is God? God is love. That's right. And what kind of love? does he have what did jesus do in his demonstration of oneness with the father he came sacrificially and died on a cross for us so that's the kind of love god wants from us it's to be a sacrificial love the kind of love that puts the needs of others above others did ananias and sapphira do that there's the biggest problem right their lie and they were not living sacrificially for the the brethren 
Mm-hmm. Yes, uh-huh. Okay, he, he gave him good advice. He, told him he sure did. You know he's a lawyer. No, well, I don't know. Did anybody do any research? He was the one that trained Paul or Saul, actually. I think he was trained by Gamaliel. Cool. I, so, I don't know. I've never done any research on that. That's a good one to Google or to go into a concordance and look up and trace him and see if you can find him. You know, he told them just leave them alone. If they are of God, then, then you don't want to be against them. That's right. So there's, a, so there's another principle that we learned about the church and about God's people, Right. If God is for you, no, who can who be can against you? Another Romans verse, right? And, he's, and in this particular case, he says, if they are not from God, and he gave two examples of men that had come previously and had tried to st- start some kind of an, up, uh, an uprising of something new, and what happened to them when they died? It just died out, right? But in this one, he says, but if it is of God... You will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be fighting against God himself. Very interesting insight that this man had. Good, wise counsel. No, they didn't, because then what did they do? They flogged them. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is where this is where the point to going through a book like this systematically looking for the historical record of why did this author record these things that he's demonstrated to us, these things which he has presented to us, these specific events, is to show us some truths about the church. What are some he- things that you learned about a healthy church? What constitutes a healthy church from just what we've looked at in the first five chapters? Just throw out some things that you're, you can think of. Unity, what would, love. unity and love in the church, in the body of Christ, that there be unity and love amongst its believers. What else? They should be boldly proclaiming and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? And it has to be Jesus who is spoken of. In his name, people are saved. So if you've got a church that's preaching a gospel other than that, there's a problem, right? right? What else do we know? Say it again. Okay, that there's, there's a... A, a, almost a mandate that we are to love the church so well and we are to make sure that the needs of the believers in it are cared for and taken care of. And now what's interesting is when we get into the next chapter, we're going to see that there were some that were being neglected. So early in the church, we see there are some problems, huh? We are to encourage one another. Absolutely. That there's to be encouragement in, in that way, that love for one another. Boy, a standard of holy living is expected in the household of faith. And if you're in a church where they don't have any standards of expectations, anything goes, we're just going to love them all, we're going to just let them all go and be and do without rebuke, without confrontation, without addressing, without preaching truth that might bring conviction. If we're allowing that, is that a healthy church? No. That is not a healthy church. Okay? In fact, we see that in Revelation chapter 2. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, its members teach a pure gospel message, which is salvation in the name of Jesus. What about perseverance? Is there an expectation of perseverance, even in spite of opposition? That is definitely something we see going on in this particular chapter. How did you title this chapter? We got to chapter 4, where we see apostles that preached in spite of opposition... 
And in spite of opposition, what happened to the church? It still grew. It grew. So here's a great demonstration of that. Um, what else did we learn in chapter 5? Yeah, don't lie. Ananias and Sapphira died, and, the, and then the people fe- feared God. There was a fear of God that came upon the people because of that discipline that God inflicted on the church. So what we see really is what uh, Kathleen brought up, really, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in the old covenant, there was a standard of expectation for the people. In the new covenant, there is also a standard of expectation among the people that God will hold them their feet to the fire on it. And although he doesn't always, he can take your life. If the sin becomes so overt that his name is being... Um, uh, defiled or profane. Now, what's really important to understand is, is why do you think with Ananias and Sapphira he was so severe in that particular moment? Because what? It's the birthing of something new and he needs to set a standard so that as things move forward, they understand what the standard expectations are. Whew. Well, we didn't get through everything, but we got through a lot. Good job, you guys. Thank you so much for your work. You did good.